you would, please take your Bibles out and open them to the book of Daniel where we resume our study. It has been some time since we were there, a couple weeks at least, and now we get to come back to this. The last time I preached was the beginning of Daniel 6 where we began to look at Daniel 6 and lay the foundation context for what will follow. Of course, as I've probably said before, I don't remember if I've said this or not, probably one of the most known stories in Scripture is Daniel 6. Even people who know little of the Word or are not even well-versed in Scripture, thank you, um, are familiar with Daniel and the lion's den. That's just one of those stories that has circulated throughout the years, and people are familiar with it. Familiarity is often the enemy to real understanding, because so often we can come to a familiar story and assume we know, oh, I know that, I know that story. And as I've been studying this afresh and just being reminded of the rich truth that is captured within these familiar stories, you know, familiar scripture is familiar because people have kind of like the 23rd Psalm or or the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament, Daniel 6, it's familiar we should understand because somewhere along the way, some people said, this is really powerful. We need to hone in on this. And so this morning, we're kind of honing back in on this powerful story of Daniel standing before his accusers. Would he be willing to go to the lion's den or would he falter? Of course, we've read the story we know, but the Hebrew writer here, or actually the Aramaic writer, as it, as it were, uh, is writing to us. He's kind of letting some suspense build for us. It's good writing. He's letting, he's saying, he's, he's continuing to give us all this background setting information before we hear what happens. Well, of course, today we do hear what happens. We get to that point. But then he kind of lets it hang for a little bit before we hear what God's response was and is. And so today, we continue to look at Daniel, we continue to look at the theme of faithfulness as we come back round to this again and again and again, and we shouldn't think of Daniel as being repetitive so much as we should realize that the book of Daniel is trying to encourage us to say, hey, faithfulness is really important. Being faithful to Yahweh in a moment is not small stuff. It's not kids' play. It's not child's play. It's not unimportant. It's very important. In fact, it's so important that we're going to tell you again and again and again and again and give you story after story of here's what faithfulness looks like. And oh, by the way, this is how you should structure your life that come what may, I'm going to be faithful. That's what Daniel is driving at here. And so this morning, we continue to make our way through Daniel 6. We're going to be looking at Daniel 6, verses 10 to 18 this morning. So follow with me now in your, in your Bibles if you have them. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, perfect, inerrant word. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. 
Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, your word is before us. Use it to transform us, compel us to be different by its truth. Renew our hearts, I pray in Christ. Amen. So maybe you're familiar with this event in history. It's called the Chinese Boxer or China's Boxer Rebellion that happened around the turn of the 20th century from about 1899 to 1901. Now, just a little history lesson. The China's Boxers were actually people who were experienced in martial arts. And historically, from Western countries, they called martial artists from China Chinese Boxers. That's where we get this word. But this Boxer Rebellion happened from about 1899 to about 1901. And the idea that these boxers were in rebellion was the importation of other cultures into China. They wanted to keep Chinese culture pure. And so foreigners or people that they saw as, I'm going to put this in quotes, imperialists, who wanted to import their own politics, their own economy, their own culture into China, were seen as the enemy. Chief among those were Christians. The Chinese boxers or this group of people saw the Christians as China's primary enemy. And so their goal in that three-year span was to get them out and to persecute them mercilessly in, in, a, in an effort to get them out. And there's one story. One particular station was captured by these, the, the insurgents. And there was one way in, one way out. And they took the cross that had hung there and they laid it in, in front of the front door. And they said, if you want to come out of here alive, you're going to trample this cross. And so, reluctantly, the first seven did that with tears. They, they, they walked over the cross. And the eighth girl, the eighth young lady who came out, she stopped in front of the cross and she looked at it for a second. And then she decided to kneel and to pray. It gives me chill bumps because this young lady set the tone and every other person who came out of that station marched to their death because they would not defile the cross. Now, it may be easy for us as human beings to say, well, you know, God is going to forgive them if they did it just one time. But see, this is where I think faithfulness kicks in, where they say, I am not willing to even give you the remotest impression that this is not worth my very life. And so they set an example for what it means to be faithful even when it costs you everything. Where do you think they learned that? Well, from centuries of martyrs saying, my faith in Christ is more valuable than my life. And where did those martyrs learn it? They learned it from Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel, and Paul, and Peter, and James, and John, and all these people who said, my life is forfeit if it means I must deny Christ. Or my life is forfeit if it means I must minimize the truth, beauty, and majesty of Yahweh. But people don't just do this in a box. We understand that when we've seen the examples before us again and again of what it means to choose faithfulness in a moment, the worst thing that can happen to you and me is not that we lose our lives. I don't want any of you to die. 
I'm not aching to die right now myself. But that's not the worst thing that could happen to us. The worst thing that can happen to us is to be apostate or drawn away from Christ and to lose saving love or to be separated from saving love. I don't believe we lose Christ's saving love if we're genuinely saved. So when we look at this, what is that example? What is what we've just read? It's it's faithfulness. And and I'll say it again. It's faithfulness. This is a recurring theme in the Bible. In fact, I would challenge you to comb through the Scriptures and find one book of the Bible where faithfulness is not a key theme in it. And there's a reason for that, because God knows, as the hymn writer said, that we are prone to wonder. We need to be reminded to be faithful. We need to be re-encouraged to be faithful, but because it is an essential quality of the follower of the Lord is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Daniel 6 and Daniel 3, as I've said this before, are very similar in content and theme. They are both dealing with people put in a hard circumstance and asked, what will they do? Will they be faithful or will they choose to deny their Lord? And so when we we get down to Daniel 6, just like in Daniel 3, what is the pressing question? When we are facing the direst of circumstances, will we choose faithfulness? When we're facing the direst of circumstances, will we choose faithfulness? What is, when we, think about, when we think about faithfulness, one of the questions that we ask ourselves beyond this in the direst of circumstances, will we choose faithfulness? How does the threat of pain and death alter how we live? How does the threat of pain and death alter how we live? Well, here's what the scriptures would tell us, that no matter the circumstances, that no matter how hard they are, that God's love and presence, they remain the same. What is is the balm for your soul in hard circumstances? Well, it's not finding a quick fix. It's not just feeling better temporally. It's understanding that there is an infinite, eternal love and presence that sometimes calls you to walk in the valley of shadow, not to torture you, but to remind you that you are infinitely loved even in hard times. And so circumstances change, God does not. God's love and presence remain the same. God is never absent, okay? God is never absent. Wherever you are right now, whatever struggle you're in, if you feel alone, I can relate relate on some level. God is not absent. I need to hear that this morning. You need to hear that this morning, that God is not absent. But we're such an emotional, uh, tactile people. If we can't feel in touch, we just, well, I can't feel God. And so then that feeling influences truth. Let me say, let truth wash over you right now. God is not absent. He's not absent. When we think about faithfulness, beloved of God, it's born out of trust. Where does faithfulness flow from? It flows from a deep and rich faith that God is true, his word is true, and it's calling us to something. It's calling us out of something to something. It's calling us out of this world into relationship with him and to live that out every day of our lives, every moment. What is the world's objective in all this? Well, it's to test faithfulness, to see if when things get tough, will you and I, will we really stick to our convictions? Will we really stick to what we believe? Will that really be the thing? Or will we buckle? Will we fold? Well, we then communicate, well, what I really told you was really important is now really not all that important because when the chips are down, I'm going to be a pragmatist. I'm going to save my own skin. But love, I'm not asking you to go out and try to recruit persecution. It will come on its own. 
But I'm asking you to right now, when you are not being persecuted, when you are not under the hammer, when you are not between the hammer and the anvil, that you say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. No turning back. No turning back. Because it's not when we're in the crucible that we're going to make that decision. It becomes now. And we start living that out day by day by day by day. The issue here for Daniel is simple. Under the threat of death, would he remain faithful and righteous? But it, you, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. It's pretty telling that the men who entrapped him assumed he would do what he thought was the right thing. They assumed that given this pro- prohibition on prayer, he was going to pray anyway. What does that tell you about his testimony in a very pagan world? That he lived fearlessly for Yahweh, and he made no bones about where his allegiance lay. May all our enemies, may those who call themselves enemies of us, may they one day say, yeah, I hate that person, but I'll tell you what, come hell or high water, they're not going to deviate from God. So we can just go ahead and chalk that one up. They assumed Daniel's faithfulness would be his death nail. So may that be said of us. This morning there's one idea, namely this. God calls us to faithfulness and pleasure and pain. God calls us to faithfulness and pleasure and pain. I can think of no better example of this than marriage. We think about marriage, and I'm sure you kind of took some sort of vow that was very similar for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and in health, forsaking all others, till death do we part. What did you promise? Well, when we made that promise, those of us who have made that promise, we stood before God and an audience and said, I'm promising to be faithful to you, and it's not going to be dictated circumstantially. So the circumstances are not going to be dictate my faithfulness because faithfulness is not relative to my circumstances. Faithfulness is a lifestyle that we develop in a marriage that we make a vow, a promise to live that way, and we ask God to witness it, and we pray that God's mercy and grace and strength help us to live that out. So it's not relative. It's, it's, an, it's a promise that we live out. So it's no wonder when we think of Ephesians 5, when Paul compares our relationship with Christ to a marital relationship. Why? Because relationships are based on faithfulness. Our relationship with Jesus is based on his faithfulness to the Father and to us. And our relationship as marital partners is based on our faithfulness one to another. When you lose faithfulness, beloved, you use a pillar of marriage. And so it... it, we get this sense that we understand there's something in our brains that works that, yeah, in pleasure and pain, I'm called to faithfulness. In pleasure and pain, I'm called to faithfulness. Well, this morning, I appreciate the fact that Daniel hears the news and we get a, a, this idea of what, what, what do we do in persecution? What is the right response? Well, faithfulness for sure, but prayer. So when we think about prayer, sometimes if you're honest... When you're going through your roughest struggles, the hardest thing for you to do is pray because either A, maybe you feel abandoned, you feel isolated, you feel like I've prayed and prayed and prayed and God hasn't heard me, I don't want to pray anymore. Maybe, maybe some of all of that. Maybe none of that. Maybe it's something totally different. But as a pastor now for several years, I know that when people, I'm talking with people who are going through hard times, so often they say, I can't even pray right now. To which I'm like, time out, boss. This is when you need to be praying the most. When you don't feel it, that's when you need to be praying it. And I have to tell my own self that. There are seasons where I don't want to pray because I just feel so hurt or wounded or just so lethargic or so weighed down. I don't want to. 
And that's when the Holy Spirit says, hey, boss, it's now. Now is the time to pray. Not that it's never not a good time, but that especially is the time. So circumstances can't dictate prayer. Faithfulness to God does. Where do we see a perfect example of this? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, he's about to die. He knows it. What does he do? He could have done anything. He spends time in prayer. That ought to tell us something about what it means for when we are under the gun, when we are between the hammer and the anvil. If Jesus thought, hey, I'm the second person of the Trinity. I'm the Son of God. I am God incarnate. And when times are hard, I'm going to spend time in communion with the Father. We ought to as well. That's telling us something about how important prayer is. Verse 10, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, I love this verse, when Daniel knew for sure the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously, or more literally, as he had always done. In other words, what does this tell us about Daniel? Faithfulness, here we see it again, not just in defying a godless law, but spending time in prayer with his God as he had always done. We see that in the crucible, what do we find out about Daniel? He doesn't change. He doesn't become a different person. This is the same Daniel who's gone to his house every day, three times a day, prostrated himself before the Lord and prayed. This is horribly mundane, but it's beautifully mundane because he says, whatever threat you have on me is not going to change the way that I live. I'm going to live for God regardless of what you say. And bring it on. Bring on the wild beasts. Bring on the fire. Bring on the lions. I'm not uh, diverting my way. Daniel's response to this law is to do exactly what had been forbidden. To do exactly what had been forbidden. Why? Because what had been forbidden was calling him to do something wrong. To do something idolatrous. And so we see Daniel disobeying. Now, we have this little detail that his windows were opened toward Jerusalem. That's a head scratch. Why? I wonder why that detail is in there. Well, there are actually a, a few different reasons it could be. Uh, back in 1 Kings, in chapter 8, this is the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. Sol the temple is being dedicated. Saul makes this prayer before the Lord. And, and starting in verse 44, I want you to hear what Solomon says. If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen, i.e., Jerusalem, and the house that I have built for your name, i.e., the temple, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Now, he keeps going. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, a good little reminder of why we need the Lord, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they return their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you, here we go, toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, i.e. Jerusalem, and the house, i.e. the temple, that I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their calls. I'm going to stop right there. Is it possible that Daniel has his windows open toward Jerusalem to fulfill what Solomon had prayed? Sure, that's possible. It's highly likely, in fact, given that it's such 
it's such detailed information. But it's also possible that he opens his windows towards Jerusalem because in a land surrounded by pagan idolatry, idols everywhere, deities everywhere, false deities everywhere, and symbolically he's saying, I'm looking past all this and I'm looking to Yahweh. I'm looking to the Lord. I'm praying to the Lord. Either way, either one of those explanations is just fine and acceptable. But let me tell you, it doesn't much matter why. What matters is, is that in a hard circumstance, in a forbidden circumstance, Daniel chose to pray, pray to his God. You know what this makes me think of? At the very least, we can say the windows open toward Jerusalem is an aid to his prayers. It is doing something for him in prayer that is a little bit more uplifting. Now, why would we bring this out? Because I've mentioned already a couple times that maybe sometimes we have a hard time praying. And what might reasons for that be? Well, either we're broken and we're hurting, uh, we're having a hard time focusing in on what it is we really should be praying, or we just can't find the words. We can't find the words to pray. In those moments, I would say, beloved of God, an, an aid to prayer can be helpful. Since Jesus has come, since Jesus has fulfilled all that the temple stood for, might I suggest to you that if you're struggling in prayer, that you turn over to the prayer book in the Bible, which is called the Psalms, and let the Psalms nourish your heart through prayer. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. Sometimes I get lost in prayer and think, I don't know what to say, but let the psalmist guide your words. Psalm 23, Psalm 51 if you need repentance, Psalm 46 if you need to remember that God is a real refuge. Any number of the psalms and the words of the psalmist, what do they do for us? Well, they teach us how to speak to God in a biblical way, and they also teach us how to wait on the Lord's answer. And even in the midst of our lament, to have joy in the midst of our sorrow, to rejoice and be glad, and in our rejoicing to remember why we rejoice in the first place, but to remember the Lord. When we look at this, we are told that he did it three times daily, that Daniel prayed three times daily. Why is that little detail in there? Uh, is it literally three times Probably, but at the very least, what it's trying to tell us is that he was very committed in prayer. He didn't just pray over his meal in the morning, that was it. He took time out of his day, three times daily at least, to pray to God. Why? He lived in captivity. He lived in enslavement. What was his, what was his prayer? It was the remedy for his hardship. And it tells us that he bowed. Now, is it necessary for us to bow every time we pray? No, but I love that he does it here. Because you know what he's saying? He's bowing towards Yahweh. He's bowing towards the Lord. I'm a servant of you, O Lord. I'm a servant of the true king of heaven and earth. I'm a servant of the one true God. I don't serve Babylon. I don't serve Persia. I don't serve the gods of Babylon, Assyria, or Persia, or whomever else would come. I serve the Lord. Beloved, I love this. He's acknowledging the lordship of Yahweh in the face of his trials. Who is Lord? Even when I'm hurting, who is Lord? Yahweh is Lord. And he doesn't just ask God for help and mercy. It tells us there that he gave thanks. Now, imagine going one step more radical. He's praying in the face of persecution. He's praying when it's forbidden. He's staying committed to his God. He's faithful. And in all that, he is thanking the Lord. How often do we do that? We're just saying, you give and take away, you give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name. Is that really descriptive of us? 
because I find this man in, in hard circumstances and he takes time to thank God. We have an interesting word here in verse 11 in these men that says in the ESV and a lot of translations, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Came by agreement. It's actually in the word in the Aramaic is a word that literally means thronging. So to throng. And so what does that mean then? Well, technically what it means is they came in mass and in force. There's an example in the New Testament when Jesus had done some miracles and the people thronged to him to try to make him king by force. That's the same idea. That these, what it's trying to communicate is, is these guys are not just casual. They're very intentional. They're coming in force and they're coming with evil intentions. So they are coming with the intention to do evil where they knew they'd find Daniel doing exactly what he was doing, which was being faithful to his God, not shirking the task of prayer. And as I said to you, does the world know this of us? Does the world know that we will be faithful to the Lord? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves. I need to ask myself that, and you should ask yours. The rest of this paragraph, verses 12 to 18, is all about them slapping shut the trap for death. That's The rest of this is about, verses 12 to 18, is all about them bringing death to Daniel. And so when we look at this, we can see a theme for what does the world want to do? The world wants to rule. How does the world rule? The world rules by fear and pain. And if you think about our own day, ask yourself, how different is our world in today's culture? The world still seeks to use fear and pain to rule. and to per That's why you have so many countries who persecute on such a global scale, or such a large scale, national scale anyway. Why? Because they understand that our response to fear and pain is so visceral that they can use fear and pain to control. And they do. A lot. In all kinds of ways. And so the officials, they set the trap. Remember now, they, Darius, they came to him. Now, the, the verse 12, Darius knows he signed an injunction. What are they doing here? They're actually very crafty. They're getting him to admit out loud in front of all of them, there is absolutely no way for me to change this law. Why are they even concerned about that? Well, they understand that he has a heart for Daniel. He's partial to Daniel. He trusts Daniel. Then they want to get Daniel out of the way, so the officials set the trap for Darius to recommit to the irrevocability of this law. They use deception. They use hypocrisy. Remember, it said earlier or previously in the previous paragraph, we've all agreed. But Daniel hadn't agreed. So they're using deception. They're very hypocritical. They're using the tools in their toolbox, the things that, that are come most natural to them. But look, remember, Daniel, Darius knows who Daniel is. Why do they take pains to describe him as Daniel, the son of the exiles of Judah? It's very intentional and not different from Belshazzar when he did it. They are making a dig at his nationality. This could be an early example of genuine racism. That scum from Judah, that slave, that guy who's not Mede or Persian, that one among us who don't belong, you can almost hear it, him, he's the one we're talking about. This scoundrel who probably deserves it because he's no good anyway, he's the one who is demeaning the king. And, 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 and you know, and are we even shocked, king? I mean, this is kind of pouring off the cage. Are we even shocked that this one is the one? No. We knew he'd be this way. 
You can hear it in the literature as it's writing, and, and the way that they, that they describe him is very much insulting his origins. You know why? It's called a logical fallacy. When you're talking to somebody and you're trading in ideas and they quit trading in ideas and just start attacking you personally, it's called ad hominem. It's when I have nothing else left to attack, I'll just attack the person. When I have no way to get at the truth or to change your mind, I'm just going to start slinging shade on you personally, which is exactly what they're doing. They can't attack his character. All they can do is have this trumped-up charge and attack his origins, attack his tribe. But here's what they say. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Talk about a little melodrama. He pays no attention to you. It's like, it's like when maybe a, a, a couple are in an argument and one's, you never pay attention to me. Well, that's not true. Never is a big word. And, and so it's kind of it's melodrama for effect. What they're doing is drama for effect. He pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you signed. But isn't it interesting here? Beloved of God, there is what I would call a divine irony at work here. He pays no attention to you, O king, but there is a king that Daniel pays attention to, and that's the king that Daniel serves. And the reason Daniel is in the predicament that he's in is because he pays attention to every jot and tittle of the true king of heaven. So, no, it's not as if Daniel pays no attention to Darius. He just pays more attention to Yahweh. And beloved, when it comes to our own interaction, our culture with leaders, that's it. We do need to pray for our leaders. We do need to submit to rule insofar as it's not asking us to sin. We do need to pay attention to things that are going on, but we need to pay more attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he calls us to do. When we see the king's response, we see the value of Daniel. The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, literally, and set his mind laboring to deliver Daniel. Or there it is in the ESV. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. So the king's response, it shows Daniel's value, it shows Daniel's character. The scriptures say that he was greatly distressed, that he was laboring to figure out a way to save Daniel. Daniel's value is known, he's loved, he's respected. So this gets at just, he's a good slave or he's a good worker. This gets into, he was valued as a person. That Darius valued him. Beloved, how do we live in a land where we're exiles, where we show our worth by living faithfully to God, but being excellent in how we live? Excellent in character, excellent in work ethic, excellent in how we try to relate to people. Those things are not to earn any sorts of brownie points. That's how do we live out the gospel in our culture. Daniel did it, and that's why he's valued. Well, sensing that the king was wavering, verse 15 says, the men came by agreement, there's that word thronged again, to the king and said to the king, no, king, this is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. There again, they're laying it on, they're making him, they're forcing the king. What they're doing is saying, you have to do this today. This has to be done right now. They don't want any time to elapse. And when we look at that, a profound picture comes in view. Who is the most powerful man in the world at this point? Darius is. 
What is Darius powerless to do? The very thing he wants to do. The one thing he wants to do right now, i.e. save Daniel, he can't do. He can't do it. He's powerless. It reminds us that humans make great friends and humans make great companions. Humans make terrible saviors. Humans make terrible saviors. That's because no human can save. We need something stronger than what each of us possesses. So even the most powerful human in the land was powerless. What do we see dripping off the page? The supremacy of God. The supremacy of God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. The king may be the most powerful man in the land, but he can't save Daniel. What is the scripture telling us? God can. What, what Darius cannot do, God can do. What Darius will not do, God will do. And it's just this reminder in this page or on these pages of Scripture that God is the true Savior of people, of his people. So what happens? We're coming to the end. Bear with me. And the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared... The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. I, wanna, I had to pull out my phone. I'm sorry, I've, I've never used my phone in my sermon, but I needed to this morning because there's a note I want to make here. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. What do you have here? You have, this, you have this theological picture of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the servant that's flowing through Daniel, i.e. God's righteous tribe of people throughout history, constantly in battle with the forces of evil. We see it very clearly here. We've seen it with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. But when we, see, when we see what Darius says to him in verse 16, I'm going to reread this again. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. That sounds a lot like a prayer. And there's a reason it sounds this way, because one of the verbs in there is imperative, and they're trying to, they're trying to capture the style. Imperative is the tense of command. They're trying to capture the style of the verb by using may here. But let me, let me read to you how the NASB, the New American Standard, renders this because this is actually literally wooden translation. The New American Standard says, Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and thrown into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, Your God, whom you continually serve, will himself rescue you. You hear the difference? One sounds like a prayer. One is saying, it's a statement of faith. I'm not asking. I'm telling you, Daniel, I, Darius, pagan king, you, Daniel, faithful Yahweh follower, your God, whom you continually serve, he will rescue you. Beloved, if that doesn't give you chills, you need to wake up because that is a powerful, powerful statement from a man who is godless. How does he know that? How does he even know that? Because of Daniel's faithfulness in his court. How does he describe Daniel? Continually serves God. Who is Daniel serving in this tragedy? God. Who will Daniel serve come hell or high water? God. And that's the point. We get this after this wonderful declaration. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it, sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Why, is it, why are we being told that he was sealed in? Because now only God can help Daniel. Nobody. Nobody else. And that's the point. 
You know what this exhilarating story reminds us of? There was another tomb or cave with another stone rolled over the entrance with another seal set in place to tell people this righteous man is dead. This guy is dead and he's never coming back and we're going to prove it to you. But you see, that stone was also rolled away. That seal was also broken by the power of God and that man, Jesus Christ, came up out of that tomb alive. We're looking at a story that says, look, look to the future, look to the future, because this is telling us something about a man who will come several hundred years later. If this doesn't point us to Jesus, beloved of God, there is very little else that does. When we look at this, that God, God is going to raise Daniel up. Let's, let's just think metaphorically. Metaphorically, he's going to raise him from the dead. He should have been dead. He's going to bring him out of that tomb as a symbol of the power of the living God and what he can do among humans. It is a powerful story. It is a powerful story that points to another powerful man. Why was Daniel willing to go to the lion's den? Where was he in the den? We'll see about that more next week. Daniel was where he always was, where he always lived, in the hands of the living God. Horum Deo, before the face of God, that's where he stayed. And so when we look at the king's anguish in the very last verse that we've already read, then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting, no diversions were brought to him, sleep fled from him. He doesn't want anybody in his room, he doesn't want to eat or drink, he can't sleep. What that tells you is what we've already said. He loved Daniel. It speaks to Daniel's life and Daniel's impression that he made on the king. When we look at Daniel here, what do we remember? Do you, do you, I constantly think about the 23rd Psalm. I love that song. I read it often or listen to it read often. When you look at Daniel, and you remember the 23rd Psalm when he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? What, what is David getting at when he writes that? That there is food and substance. There is provision even in the face of his enemies. We see Daniel live the 23rd Psalm here. He has had a feast, a table prepared before him in the presence of his enemies, being reminded that Yahweh is with him. Beloved, faithfulness is always the right response. You know, if we're being honest with each other, I with you and you with me, it's easy to meet evil with evil, isn't it? It's easy to want to do that, and it's easy to do it. Because often when, we've, when evil has been done to us, it feels so justified to meet it with evil. It's like, oh, you're going to feel what you did to me. I'm guilty, and you are guilty too. We all are. I think that's one reason that Daniel's faithfulness in this book is so astounding. He doesn't meet evil with evil ever. God doesn't call us to be faithful when we feel it's warranted. God doesn't call us to be faithful when others deserve it. God calls us to, intimate, to uh, imitate Christ who chose faithfulness even to the very end when people yelled at him and cursed him and made fun of him and, and beat him. And Daniel is a foreshadowing of the one who would come and endure great injustice for the sake of his people that we might be rescued both Jesus and Daniel, they loudly proclaim the necessity of faithfulness, not because, and not because, our faithfulness saves us, but because it loudly proclaims whose we are to a watching world. I challenge myself this morning, and if you are challenged by it, then good. How can I be more faithful in moment by moment by moment?
how can I not look at others as either deserving or undeserving of my faithfulness and choose faithfulness because it's good, right, true, and it glorifies God? The question we must ask ourselves is, how can I glorify God in this moment? And his answer is always going to be faithfulness. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. It's known to us and it's fresh and it's powerful, it's gripping, it's true. Thank you for the truth of Scripture, that when we come to this word, it comes alive because it is alive, because it's spirit-inspired. It renews, it convicts, it challenges, and it transforms. And may it do all those things to us this morning, I pray. We do acknowledge your mercy and its depth and ask that we continue to know it, to walk in it, to live in it but also to be conduits of it. Father, help us to be faithful. Forgive us for our lack of faithfulness. Help us to choose faithfulness moment by moment. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.